Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. This episode is all about education, and who better to talk to about the education system in Washoe County than one of the members of the Board of Trustees. Today's guest is Kurt Thigpen. He was elected to the Board of Trustees last year and is just finishing his first school year with the district. We talked about LGBTQ issues, access to meetings and how to reach out to your trustees, school funding, taxes, and all kinds of important issues for education. This was really interesting. I learned a whole lot. I don't know that much about the education system because I don't have kids, so it was very helpful for me to learn a lot today from someone who knows. Before we get into the interview, as always, if you really enjoy the show, I would really appreciate you letting people know about it. This is still a brand new podcast, and one of the challenges with a project like this is just getting the word out. So tell your friends, tell your family, tell your neighbors, tell your barista, tell your social media friends, anyone who you think might enjoy the show, please let them know that it exists. I appreciate all the support I've gotten so far. Thank you very much for listening. And now this week's guest, Kurt Thigpen. Kurt Thigpen, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'd like to start just by talking a little bit about what the Board of Trustees is. So you are on the Washoe County School District Board of Trustees. You were recently elected to that position. I don't have kids. I am not that familiar with the education system here in Northern Nevada. So I guess a good place to start is for you to just tell us a little bit about what that role is. What what does the Board of Trustees do and what don't they do? Because I think a lot of people might have an assumption about what you're able to do that's not actually part of the role. So can you just talk about how the the structure of the Board of Trustees works, what you do as a member of that board, and and how that affects the education system here in Northern Nevada? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think this is a great question because a lot of people either don't know or have misconceptions about what a role of a trustee is on the school board. So the school board itself is the governing body of our school district. We oversee everything from a 30,000-foot level. We oversee the superintendent, who is our only employee, so we don't hire and fire teachers or principals or anything like that, nor do we control what goes on on a day-to-day basis in the classroom. Our job is to oversee everything from a high level, a big-picture level, so that is changes to overall curriculum, overseeing our budgets and approving those, overseeing our strategic plan and the direction of the school district, as well as making sure that, you know, we're doing everything we can to listen to our constituents and get their opinions, whether that's teachers, parents, even the students have a voice in all of this. So our jobs is to take into consideration what our community members think on things that are coming up to take that into consideration and make the best uh, decision possible on all of the things that we have to decide on. Some of the things that are kind of misconceptions are that, you know, we can control everything from, you know, mask mandates, for example, is one of them. There's a misconception that the school district has its own mask mandate when we don't. That's from the state level. and We have to abide by that. We can't overrule what the governor says. And, you know, just as we don't control what your child had for school lunch yesterday, uh, I get a lot of emails from parents of, you know, things that happen in the classroom. And so sometimes I have to end up being kind of a traffic director and route that to the right people to look into those things. 
And I think sometimes people just want to be heard, which is great too, because that's kind of what I'm there for as well. So it's a really um, interesting role. It's one that, you know, (laughs) a lot of people say it's a thankless job. I, I do meet a lot of people who appreciate the work that we're doing, but of course there's those who feel that we could be doing a better job. It's been an interesting time to be a trustee as well. Yeah, you mentioned getting input from parents and students and constituents. How does that generally work? I know that you have board meetings that have been accessible, but because of COVID, there's some restrictions. And I know that those meetings have had some challenges in recent weeks. What does the general process look like for people to communicate with the trustees? And how does that communication flow generally go? Are there any challenges that you've had with it? Or or what, is it, what does it look like on the ground? Yeah, I think the the thing that people don't realize is they can talk to their individual trustee. The Washoe County website, washoeschools.net, actually has a whole directory of each trustee, and you can figure out which one is your representative. And you can email us directly. We have our email addresses are listed there. There's also a board member, like a general board member at washoeschools.net that people will email if they just want to email the board in general and our board president responds to those emails. We actually are required, if you email us on an individual or group basis, we're required by our own board policy to respond within 48 hours. The only time we don't respond is when people submit public comment. So that is where, you know, one of our meetings is coming up. The agenda is posted. People have read it. They can write to the public comments at washerschools.net email address and, you know, submit comment on whatever they like. We receive all those emails, but we don't respond to public comment because it's just, you know, that's your comment. That's your time to put something on the record. And we have had to switch to virtual again because of COVID. I mean, the last in-person meeting we had, we unfortunately had a lot of people who refused to wear masks and put a lot of other folks at risk who were complying with the state guidelines that we have to follow by. So it became really difficult for staff to mitigate that. So under the current governor's directives, we can meet virtually until that is lifted. So we're doing that for now. Hopefully we can get back to meeting in person. But in-person meetings, you know, people would show up as well and give public comment up to three minutes of whatever they want to talk about, whether it's on the agenda or off the agenda. Yeah, that's kind of the ways that people can reach us now. I'm very active on social media as well, so people can reach me through there. But I'm interested to see what that looks like once, you know, COVID is behind us and I can actually get out more in person in the community and meet with people one-to-one. Yeah, this is your first term in this role, right? How long are the terms and what's your experience been like so far with actually engaging with people with some of these restrictions? Have you still found it? You said you use social media a lot. Have you found it easy to still have those conversations or has COVID really made it difficult as you've come into this role? I think COVID's make it made it difficult because even though, you know, everyone's on the internet, they don't always understand who they can talk to or how they can reach out to someone. So even though I try my best to be as accessible as possible, we hear from people who were coming to the meeting saying, you know, you guys are so far removed from us, from the public. And so that that is something that does concern me and something that, you know, I'm certainly trying to do my best as one trustee to to just be out there as much as possible. I would say that it's been interesting just because 
of coming in to office when COVID is still happening. It's kind of like jumping in the deep end and trying to swim your way out. I don't envy my predecessors for all that they had to deal with when COVID had actually hit. So we're still trying to do what we can to keep students safe, to give them the best education as possible. But it's really difficult when you have attendance issues after COVID. I mean, every school system is seeing that when graduation rates are falling and people are getting behind, students are getting behind. But, you know, we're not alone in that. Every school system in America is experiencing the same issues. So we're certainly trying our best, but sometimes it's it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. Are these decisions around COVID safety and school openings and distance learning, does that all fall under the purview of the Board of Trustees? And are those the decisions that you guys are making on the day-to-day? Uh, I would say yes and no. It is a standing agenda item on each meeting. So that, and the reason why it's standing is so that if, so- if something changes, if things get worse or if things get better, we can assess the situation and either decide to stay on our current pace or to close schools if we have to or open them back up. With regards to schools opening, we still are governed by the state restrictions on that. And it looks like we're probably still going to be on on our current mo- learning models, which is uh, middle and high school being on a hybrid model and elementary schools. You have the option to be there 100% in person if you like, but there are still a lot of parents who are concerned and rightfully so, and they still opt to be in distance learning. But yeah, we certainly, we have an update on the COVID stats of the day at each meeting. And depending on news from the governor's office or from Washoe County, which it looks like the county's going to take over soon, you know, we have to keep a close eye on what's going on and how it's going to impact our students. So the trustee positions are elected, and this was your first term. Is this your first elected office? And and what led you to run for board of trustees? What's your political background? Let's just learn a little bit about Kurt and what brought you to be on the board in the first place. Yeah, and I, I think I forgot to even answer before that it's a four-year term. And yes, it's my it certainly is my first term. I ran last year, 2020, and actually filed... It was funny, I filed to run in March officially, and then three days later, the shutdown happened. (laughs) So that was fascinating. But I originally, before COVID had hit, I had run on things like pedestrian safety for our students because we had seen an uptick in pedestrian versus cars with kids in the crosswalk going to school and cars not paying attention or speeding or what have you. I ran on increasing equity for our students, which equity just means, you know, if there are groups or students that, you know, really are falling behind versus other groups, that's doing what we can to get everyone up to speed and to graduation and career readiness, hopefully. So equity is a big thing for me. Inclusion with regards to race with sexual orientation, gender identity, All of that's very important to me, as we've seen all of those groups tend to fall behind statistically in academics. Being an openly gay person myself, I, you know, experienced a lot of barriers to my education just because of who I am. Those were kind of the big things for me and and continue to be, but COVID has certainly made them a lot harder. (laughs) Do you think that those issues were being addressed well already before you came into office or how was our school district doing on those issues of things like equity 
previously and what has happened since you've been elected or what has the effect been or have the priorities been in your term so far on those issues? Yeah, I would say the district had started on some measures before I took office in the in the fall before I took office they actually passed an anti-racism resolution which basically stood for all people are welcome in our schools no matter their background which is great. And then in January, I think it was January when I came into office the district had already created an anti-racism action plan to follow that resolution. And it passed unanimously, despite a lot of pushback from some groups in town. It continues to kind of be a sore point for those groups. Unfortunately, I think there's a lot of misconceptions on what the plan is. But, you know, essentially, it's just as I said, it's making sure that every student by name and face can make it to graduation, that we are here for every student, no matter what everyone's welcome and we accept them no matter what. I just, I wish that was something that more people could realize and get behind, but I'm very thankful that the district has that in its mission. We um, have even updated some policies whenever I took office to make certain wording more inclusive of other groups. So gender identity and expression and sexual orientation being one of them, making sure that we're speaking to people with disabilities race, religion, poverty levels, I'm really keeping an eye on that because I think words matter and lead often lead to, you know, results. So it's been very interesting, but I think we're doing some pretty good work for our students. That's good to hear. What are some of the misconceptions around that that you've had to deal with? Because I know that there, like you said, has been some some pushback and some groups in the community that are viewing this effort towards equity and inclusion as something that it may not actually be. So what kind of complaints or criticisms are you getting that are not really rooted in the reality of what this is? Can you kind of clear some of that up? Yeah, you can certainly try. And and one thing that people need to realize too is, is that the plan was passed, but we don't, the curriculum isn't out there yet. We're still working on that. That was the first step. So a lot of the folks opposing that haven't even seen what the curriculum is going to look like. And they've kind of been filling that void in with their own thoughts of what it might look like. So one of them is critical race theory, which is very controversial. That is something that has been put out there and repeated over and over again, that we're teaching that to our students and it's not true. One misconception is that this policy is racist against white people, which could not be further from the truth. The plan is to, as I said, make it to where all people are lifted up, no matter what. And I think our society will be a better place if we can all work together to be a more accepting uh, society, no matter what. So those are the main things. Uh, I think some people have mentioned that we're trying to indoctrinate kids and this and that. Really, that's not it. It's about talking through how each of us are special. And we are. I mean, America is a very diverse place. People come here from all over the world because of what we represent here in in America, that you can come here and be whatever you like. You can be successful. You can be an artist. You can be accepted uh, no matter what. And it's just not true in other countries in the world. So I think it's a beautiful thing. And I hope that we can work to make people realize that it's not 
a bad thing. Do you think that it is important that that diversity is represented on the board of trustees too? Have you found that the other members of the board generally have the same views? And is that something that has been a priority based on your own diversity in the board and that diversity of opinions? Obviously, these are elected positions. So I wonder if there is some political incentives. These being elected positions forces trustees to appeal to voters in a certain way. Is that part of what goes into getting these issues addressed is who is actually on the board of trustees and what they're incentivized by? I think representation certainly is important and it's, it is a component of why I decided to run because there, there was not an LGBT person on the school board. And I think I'm still the only LGBT person trustee on any school board in the state of Nevada. I I haven't met anyone else like me yet. (laughs) And of course we have our board president, Angie Taylor. She's the first and currently the only black school board member. You know, we, often will speak to our own lived experiences and some of these challenges, whether that is LGBT issues or advocating for people of color to make sure that they don't get left behind at some of these decisions. I I find it, it is challenging because it can be a little lonely being the, the, the only one, but I have to remind myself I'm there for a reason, the voters put me there to to speak to these things, and that I have a duty to the community as well to help some of my colleagues understand where I'm coming from and why some of these things are important. So, I think representation is certainly important, and I hope to see more of that. You know, in future years, I will say I get along really well on a personal level with my colleagues. We really are pretty respectful to each other, even during board meetings. And there are times when we certainly disagree where policy comes up. But I will walk away with these meetings not feeling angry at them personally or anything. And I've never so far haven't felt that things were politically motivated. And I try to keep that in mind as well, is that it's a nonpartisan position. I may be a Democrat, but I'm not there to represent all the Democrat students. I'm there to represent all of them. And that's something that I think my colleagues keep in mind as well. So we we really do try to keep it in perspective that everything that we do is about the students, it's about the teachers, and it's about academic achievement and removing those barriers. I'd like to learn a little bit about your your background as far as what brought you to, to Reno and to the school board and to this position. Did you have any background in education or what brought you to see education and the school board as a good venue for the things that you care about? Uh, what was that that path like to bring you up to, let's say, when you decided to run? I, I moved to Reno 10 years ago. I grew up in rural Georgia from really small town of 4,200 people. And it was very challenging, you know, especially being at an openly gay person in the South. I didn't have a whole lot of support from all of my teachers. I did have a few that were very supportive of me in general and helped me along the way. I was very involved in the arts and technology program at my school, and that kind of helped me get into what I do professionally, owning a marketing agency. 
And I've been very successful since I moved to Reno. I, you know, my agency is very well respected. We employ a lot of people. We have a lot of clients. And so I kind of saw, despite some of the challenges that I had in public education, I still believe that it is and can be something that lifts people out of poverty. It lifts people out of their situation. Um, I mean, I grew up, I was raised by a single mom who couldn't work and we lived off of child support and it wasn't a lot of money back then. So I feel very strongly that public education can help a lot of our kids and that everything starts at public education. So our society is rooted in public education. And so I've always enjoyed giving back to my community and doing what I can. And so I saw an opportunity to do that on the school board and decided to take that chance. What was the campaign experience like that you had never run for office before? What was that experience like kind of putting yourself out there as a public figure and asking for public support and votes? That seems scary and intimidating. What was what was that like? Yeah, it was it was very different. It was certainly way outside my comfort zone. And I like to joke that I should probably write a book about it because I was like running one of the you know few people in the country running during a pandemic at the same time. And so it was like rewriting the playbook almost because even though some people were aware of me, the community, they weren't aware of me on this level. And so trying to reach people during the pandemic was challenging. We did a lot of virtual stuff. We relied heavily on advertising to reach people when they were at home because we were all quarantined, mailers, and we couldn't even, I had even printed up like 2,000 door knocking materials and it was so taboo at that time (laughs) to deliver any materials to people's homes during COVID. You know, this was early stages. They were, so I, they ended up going to waste, (laughs) unfortunately, but it was very interesting and I got to learn so much about some of the struggles that a lot of our students have that our parents are seeing that people, you know, haven't been experiencing during the pandemic. We certainly worked really, really, really hard. It paid off. I mean, in June was the primary election that I was in and I had two other opponents. And the rules in Washoe County are if you're running for a county seat, if you get more than 50 per, 50% of the vote, then you win the seat outright. It was really amazing to see that that we won with 53% of the vote. I just was blown away that people believed enough in me and the message that we were getting out there to elect me. So I still sometimes I have a little bit of imposter syndrome. Like, I feel like I tricked everyone. Like, how did this happen? (laughs) But um, yeah, it's been been a a huge honor. That's great. I know there's a proposal or a bill or I'm not sure the the process, the technical process of changing that potentially to those being appointed positions or some of them being appointed positions. I don't know what the current status on that is, but can you talk a little bit about the what that idea is and what your thoughts on it are and the the differences between elected or appointed for this kind of role and what you think makes the most sense? 
Yeah, I'd be happy to. Luckily, the the bill, there were two bills on this during this legislative session in Nevada, and both of them did not make it out of committee. So it doesn't look like the appointeds are going to happen, but I'm told anything can happen, you know, in the final hours of the legislative session. Some of the bills were advocating for, uh, well, actually, I think both of the bills were advocating for partially appointed boards. So uh, basically a hybrid board of three or four appointed individuals, depending on which bill you were looking at. And each of them would be appointed by different governmental entities. So I think the most popular one was three appointed and one being appointed from the county, one from Sparks, one from Reno. And it didn't gain any popularity. I think the reasoning behind these bills is to You know, certainly keep trustees in check, which I totally respect that because we've seen a lot of controversies from both Clark County and Washoe County school districts and boards over the years. So that's how this conversation keeps coming up. I'm opposed to appointed boards just because I feel that it limits community voices and it would make it harder for certain community members to run for office. So, for example, I don't feel that it would have been likely for me to be in this position as an openly gay person. I don't necessarily think that I would end up being appointed, depending on who's in office at that time. So I think it would certainly take away different voices. Certainly people of color in different communities, they should be able to choose their own representatives. And the other side of that is is an appointed person would be beholden to the people that appointed them, not to the, uh, the community. So if you have someone who's there appointed for all the wrong reasons, they can essentially do and say what they want without you know, fear of being removed because they've been put there for a particular purpose. So I think the voters should always have a choice in that. And one of the things that people mentioned is that that a lot of people don't pay attention to school board elections. And while that may be true in certain communities, I don't believe that's true in Washer County. My own race, for example, my last name starts with a T. So I was at the, the third person on my ballot. So people had to know, you know, who I was to vote for me. You know, I saw that with other school board races that were happening that, you know, people certainly were paying attention to what was being put out in the news and researching candidates, especially since we had a major mail-in election, to make the, the right decision for them. So I think people do pay attention, and I think it is important that, you know, the communities speak their minds on this. So let's get into a couple of the issues that you guys are dealing with right now. Again, like I said, I don't have that much familiarity with a lot of these because I just basically follow the headlines on these things, but I don't have any kids and I, I'm not that closely involved with the school system. I know that funding seems to be the issue that comes up over and over and over again. And there's a couple proposals right now about mining taxes. I know you mentioned that the Board of Trustees has control over things like budgets, but things like uh, legislation that is affecting taxes, that is outside of the board's purview, I'm assuming. So can you talk a little bit about funding and what the board's role is in funding and budgeting, what the status is on some of these mining bills, and kind of how you see us improving? Nevada is one of the poorest funded education systems. So can you talk a little bit about what the financial picture looks like and what's being proposed and what you guys are doing or can do? Yeah, I'd be happy to. 
The funding is a big issue for public schools in Nevada. During the last legislative session, they had put in place an updated per-pupil funding formula. So that is basically per-pupil means how much money each student gets allocated for their education. And the new formula that was put in place was a weighted formula, meaning let's say if we had a student who uh, needed to be in part of a special needs program or an English learner program, they would get more funds for those programs than students that don't need those programs. The challenge we're having because of COVID is that updated formula is not going into place uh, 100%. The funds that our schools rely on are sales tax funds, predominantly from the state. We get a little bit from the county and we get a little bit from some other resources, but most of our funds come from the state. Um, We also receive funding from the marijuana sales tax. However, that is a drop in the bucket, unfortunately. (laughs) So it doesn't, even though it's popular, it's not something that is going to get us across the where we need to be. So for example, for Washoe County, we're looking at likely a $2 million loss with where things are currently and have had to make cuts already to our budget for next school year to accommodate that because we have to have a balanced budget. Unfortunately, we, you know, we just have to do that. That's part of our responsibility is fiscal responsibility. So with funding, a lot of people have been pushing for a mining tax. I think the mining tax is part of the actual percentage of the tax as part of the Nevada Constitution, which is very odd (laughs) to have it set in stone that way. Um, So a lot of people are, a lot of groups are looking, basically looking around and saying, well, where can we get money from to make our education funding more sustainable? So we're not relying on tourism and sales and all of that. I don't know what the status of that bill is right now. I think another push was for updating our property tax structure. I don't think that got anywhere. And I haven't, I haven't been updated on the bills yet. We get updated at every school board meeting on what the legislative stance is or where we are, we're at with certain bills. And we certainly sponsor our own bills. We have a full-time lobbyist that lobbies at the legislature for us and other government bodies on our behalf. And um, she's great. Yeah, it certainly is very dire. I mean, any cuts to public education, you know, that just sets us back even further. And then, of course, the other side of that is we're looking at, this has been in the news, the Washoe County Incline Village settlement where the county was basically saying, we, well, we the county overpaid in taxes 17 years ago. They sent their tax monies to folks like Washoe County School District, the fire district, and someone else. And they were found to have overtaxed those individuals and they are rightfully entitled to their money. But Washoe County said, well, school district, you're going to have to pay back the money plus interest. (laughs) (laughs) And our opinion as a board and as our legal team said the same thing is, well, you know, we did not make the mistake here. We don't owe this money. Uh, This will hurt our kids. We will have to make cuts if we have to pay $20 million. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
So we really are in a very challenging time in regards to funding public education. You know, it's something we have to keep fighting and because these funds matter to our kids. And the reason why a lot of people are fighting at the legislators, we still just do not have the right amount of per pupil funding per student. So if you look at other states, Nevada ranks towards the bottom in how much we spend on each student. We're, we're doing what we can with one hand tied behind our back. And I, I just, I can't thank our teachers enough because they've had to learn how to do so much with less and continue to have to do that. I am such an advocate to try and, and help us do better, but you know, it's going to take time. Yeah. How do you think we do with how we do spend the money that we do have? Obviously, the solution for most of these problems is that we need more money. If per pupil spending is some of the lowest in the country, you can't fix that just by changing how you spend the money or shuffling it around. You need more actual money. But how do you think we do as a state or as a school district with the money that we do have? Again, as someone who doesn't know that much about education system, I hear a lot about class sizes being too big, about not enough teachers, but there's also all of these specialties, like there's the English learners, there's special ed, there's other roles in the school system that need to exist and need to be funded. How do you strike a balance, kind of what goes into the decision about where you allocate money to make sure that the students are getting the best results with, you know, our limited resources? Yeah, it's certainly tough because you, and you said it well, that we, we, we're not in charge of raising our own money. We just receive what we receive and then we decide how it gets allocated. Um, so I would say the school, our school district does a really good job of telling the board, hey, here are the areas where we need improvement academically. And then they already have in place, here's the funds we want to allocate to these things because they are aware of the problems. So it's not like they're trying to say everything's great and fine. <laughs> they, they acknowledge it. They have come up with a plan for it. And, you know, we as a board hammer out those details on what we're comfortable with. It's really difficult, but I, I would say our team does a great job on, on telling us what we need to know and, and helping us make these hard decisions. And of course, we take what the community says in mind. I mean, we had this discussion earlier in the year with cuts to our gifted and talented program and to our English learner program. And, you know, we really struggled hard with that. But I think we landed in a good place in which, you know, the board said we want to see how we can promote these programs more and make them more successful, but in a way that is either budget neutral or doesn't take away from our students. And we were able to do that, thankfully, but it's not easy. <laughs> our finance team spends a whole lot of time trying to come up with creative solutions in working with the governor's office and letting them know about, you know, any sort of proposed changes to funding and, and telling them, hey, this isn't going to work, but here's how it can work better if you do X, Y, Z. So we have a good relationship with the state and the governor's office, but it's a constant battle. It really is. I think every school district has to continue in that, unfortunately, until hopefully the state comes up with some better solutions to keep funding in public education and stop cutting it. <laughs> Do you think that there's something in the the political side that pushes people to fight against additional funding? I don't know that much about the education funding 
battles or debates here in Nevada specifically, but is there public support? You would think there would be public support for more funding for schools. That seems like it should cut across party lines, that everyone should want schools to be well-funded so that they can provide a quality education. How does the political picture, kind of the the way Nevada works as a state politically and culturally, how does that play into the the funding debates? You would think that people would be on board, but you know, there's a lot of fiscal conservatives, and I certainly respect that they are very money mindful, and um, they tend to look at certain programs as somewhat superfluous. So, for example, elective programs, arts programs, social emotional learning, even though it doesn't have a cost to it, they look to these things that don't, in their minds, equate to academic success and say, well, why are we spending money on that when we can get back to reading, writing, and arithmetic? The three R's, as they like to call them, even though only one of those things starts with R. Um, <laughs> you know, it's a very traditional mindset, I understand. But what our school district and our board recognizes, for the most part, is that there are so many different barriers to academic success, whether it's paying for school lunch, having to pay an athletic fee, getting to school, so many different things, bullying, sexual abuse that they may have experienced or any other trauma in their personal lives outside of school. These are all things that our students go through on a daily basis. And so we need things like social workers. We need counselors. We need to allow for students to have lunch and not have to worry about paying for it if they can't. You know, these are all things that are part of what falls to the school district to make sure that kids stay in school and graduate. A lot of people say or like to say with regards to school funding that, oh, you know, we shouldn't be spending money on these things. And if we stop spending money on these things, then we'll get ahead. And I disagree with that. (laughs) I think if we you get back what you invest, right? If you invest in public education wholeheartedly, you will get way better results. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I generally think of schools as more than just learning the basics, how to read and how to do math. It's where kids spend a majority of their time growing up. So all of these things about social emotional learning and the way that kids are able to be in a state to learn that they have been fed, that that they're comfortable socially, those kind of things seem to matter. I'm glad that there is some attention paid to the bigger picture of what education is supposed to mean for a society. One of the issues that's come up a lot as a national narrative is LGBTQ issues. I'm thankful that we're in a state that doesn't have, doesn't seem to have a lot of the anti-trans um, like sports debate that is happening in some of these other states. I'm, I'm grateful that that's not a, you know, a political issue in Nevada right now, probably because of our elected officials that we have in office. But what have you seen? I know there have been some challenges around LGBTQ acceptance. I know a couple of years ago, there was a lot of debate around sexual education being inclusive and some of the language there. What have you found so far since being in office, the issues around LGBTQ students? Obviously, that's one of the reasons that you wanted to be on the board in the first place. What have you seen so far? What are the issues that we're facing and and how do you see it going forward? Yeah, I would say even though our state has done a great job 
at the local level, you still have groups who are vehemently against any sort of inclusion or respect or acceptance of the LGBTQ community in our schools. And what people have to realize is these people are our teachers, they're our principals, they're our school board members now, and our kids, you know, they we're everywhere. And it's 2021. <laughs> we're here, we're queer, get used to it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, uh, jokes aside, I, I have still encountered a surprising degree of pushback from folks in the community on things, whether that's just adding words to a policy to be more inclusive, even though it changes nothing about the policy in terms of its implementation. It just shows more respect and acceptance to people in the, in that community. And, you know, I've heard people come and say, you know, we, we why are we focused on this? Why are we trying to implement doctrination and leftism and homosexuality as a choice and just all kinds of hateful rhetoric. And what people don't realize is that our, our kids are listening. They're absorbing this. We want at Washington County School District to be a culture of love and acceptance for all people. And the district is behind that. I would say majority of the school board is behind that. And it's just really unfortunate that, that that's the case. And, and people haven't attacked me just yet, but I've seen, I've seen um, things in emails after I have said something, they will come back with opposing points on that. But, you know, it's all about the students, and I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I, I think that we're still going to see people pushing back and trying to undo some progress. And you mentioned the trans um, people in sports. I've seen some pushback in the community about that, even though at the school district, this has been a policy since 2015 that transgender students can play in whatever team they, they identify with their gender. Like, it's, it's a non-issue at this point. But you have people who are just now becoming aware of it and saying, oh, we don't want that. Same thing with bathrooms. We have gender inclusive bathrooms now, which are amazing, by the way. If you've been to some of the new schools, they have individual stalls like for everybody that Mm -hmm. are just completely like floor to ceiling, like no gaps or anything, like totally private. And I just was like, I wish I had this when I was in school. (laughs) Because people don't realize like how much bullying takes place in in bathrooms. So, you know, we are seeing a resurgence of this debate, unfortunately. And I very am glad that Nevada is not one of the states that are trying to pass laws against, you know, our trans community. But, um, you know, I would say at the local level, there's still folks out there who are trying to chip away at the progress that has been made. And we have to keep an eye on it. Is there the other side also being very active. Do you hear a lot of support from the LGBTQ community here in Reno? I know that there's obviously some very vocal people at some of these meetings that have created a bit of a stir, but generally from the the public at large, rather than maybe the loudest elements, what do you think the general tone is towards these kind of initiatives and, and what's going on? From my understanding, and it certainly is that, you know, the folks that are angry, they are usually the loudest voices in the room. And that's human nature. You know, we show up when we're mad about something. But um, I would say the LGBT community, I have not seen kind of like a 
a, a group in size to equate to the angry folks. <laughs> mm. And I think there's a combination of things. You know, the angry folks certainly make folks a little scared to show up, mm-hmm. especially when you are from an oppressed community. You you know, rightfully so. You you don't want to be around the the oppressors. So there, the you know, I have folks that will email instead of show up in person because that's how they feel safest. And I totally get that. And so it's a little challenging. And some of it is an awareness thing. A lot of times they're not aware that some of these people are saying these things or that there's the potential for going backwards. It is a little bit challenging. I try to make folks aware of what what's going on. And I try to do it from a, you know, a very neutral place of like, hey, you know, this is happening. If you care about this issue, I need you to do X, Y, Z, reach out to the board members, say how you feel and just keeping folks aware, because if you're not aware of what's happening, things can go sideways pretty fast. I just try to do my best in that regard. But um, (laughs) it does feel a little lonely at times when you have to be the one person speaking out on some of these things up against a lot of hateful rhetoric. How have you found the dynamics on the board itself to be? I know there's some recent reporting and controversy around people on the board and some of the approaches that are being made towards what the job is. And I'm trying to find a delicate way of putting this without kind of putting you on the spot to talk about other members of the board. But what has the the dynamic been when there seems to be a narrative of there's conflict, there's disagreement. How do you work together to get things done? Is that actually the the feel of the board right now as a productive, cohesive unit with their eyes on the prize and the right priorities? Or does this kind of political influenced conflict take away from your job and make it harder to do what you need to do? What does that all look and feel like? Yeah. And I, and of course I can't speak out against one trustee and and I like to be respectful anyway, um, even though, you know, we will disagree on things, which is, you know, that's democracy. I would say it's very unfortunate that there are political leaning forces that are trying to infiltrate a lot of what we're doing and spreading misinformation and hate around people involved in public education. But what I will say is if you and if folks watch our board meetings, we as a board usually agree on more things than we disagree, which is great because our board is in terms of political background, you've got it it's very balanced. We've got three Republicans, one independent, three Democrats. Like that's pretty balanced on its head. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, when you have a board like that, and I think in any board, you're going to have your differences, but the thing that we have in in our culture as a board is to work to find common ground, to find consensus on issues. We often get criticized for our meetings being very long, but it's because we have really, really good discussions, for the most part, very respectful on uh, a lot of these issues because we don't want to strike things down necessarily. We want to figure things out, wrap our minds around it, talk through it, and come to some sort of resolution that is beneficial for our students. So that's been my focus is to build as many bridges as I can. I've got a pretty good relationship with my colleagues, and I'm always very kind and respectful, even though you know we may have our differences either politically or 
policy wise. And I, I try to keep the political stuff away from the boardroom because at the end of the day, politics don't matter in this. It's, it's about the students. It's about real life stuff that's happening that affect our, our kids. So we try to keep that in mind. And sometimes there are distractions and folks might get astray from the core mission, but I always hope that we can work together despite that. We're recording this episode near the end of April, but it probably won't air for a couple of weeks. So things might change in the meantime, but what does it look like for the remainder of this school year? I know that there's an upcoming meeting, I think, and talk about going back to in-person for the last month or so. Is that how you think it might play out? And what are the the challenges or logistical difficulties around that of going back to school after we've already kind of geared up for this hybrid model and this online model? Will it make sense to go back to school? Do you think that's the right thing? Are you waiting to see what the state mandates and those kind of things are? What does the next month potentially look like? Yeah, it's certainly complex, and we are certainly keeping an eye on what the state says, what's going to happen when the county takes over control of local safety measures around COVID. And we have staff that are have been part of these conversations since the beginning. Yeah, you're right. This next upcoming meeting, um, we will be discussing the potential for changing the learning models again. And that's something that could have come up at any time because it's been a standing agenda item. I think that it, and this is just me, my gut thinking, I haven't talked to my colleagues. I think that the most likely scenarios will stay on our current learning models because we have heard and we were presented with this information from every department involved, nutrition services, transportation, human resources, basically on if we went back 100% in person, if the state allowed us to do that, here are the hoops to jump through. Here are the implications. And it is a lot more challenging than people realize because we are the second largest school district in the state. We have 62,000 students that we're responsible for. There's just with, I think there's only five weeks left in school. It would be such a shock to the system, so disruptive for students and teachers and principals to undo all of the work that they've gotten to, to where they're just now hitting their stride and are in a solid, stable place to finish out the year that they would have to rethink everything. I mean, students would have different teachers, um, different schedules, different curriculum. It would just, it would, it would turn everything into such chaos and it doesn't do anything to benefit the students at that point. We've heard from a lot of students saying, I just want to finish the school year. Let's keep it as is. Parents have told us the same thing and teachers. But what we have done on a positive note is after the last directives were updated, we did allow for if a school could allow more students in safely without it being overwhelming to anyone, then they have the autonomy to do that. And of course, they work with the deputy superintendent on a plan But um, I've been to, I think, 15 schools so far uh, in my first three and a half months. And I've been hearing that some success stories around that. There's, you know, one middle school I represent who says we oh, we only have a few kids that are on the hybrid model. Everyone's everyone else is here in person. 
an elementary school saying, oh, we were able to bring in 30 more kids who wanted to come out of distance learning and then they're doing well. So I think flexibility has been incredibly important here. And Mm -hmm. I'm very, very thankful to all of the staff that has worked to accommodate this because they are burnt out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I have teachers and educators in my family and friend groups. And I know that this year has been incredibly difficult on teachers and staff at school just because of all of the changes. So I, I tend to agree with you, even without knowing all of the background of it, that throwing a last minute switch a month before the end of the school year seems to be applying a lot of stress to people that are already kind of stressed and overwhelmed. And if we have, like you said, kind of found our feet on these hybrid models, it seems to me to make more sense to stick with what's working well enough. I mean, it's obviously not ideal, but if we've got it figured out and it's working well enough and the school year is almost over, it seems to make more sense to roll with what we're doing and then have a closer look for for next year. This is the the first episode that I've done about education, but this is a weekly show, so I expect that at some point I'll do more on education. What other topics or issues do you think are important that we need to be talking about in education that I can maybe include on future episodes like this? That's a good question, and it's a tough one because we've had so much going on. I just look forward to the, to the day to where I can come up for error after COVID and think through some other things. But, you know, I, what I'll say is some of the challenges that a lot of places have been having is recovery efforts. And that is something that our school district has, has been working on. So probably majority of my term is going to be dedicated to recovery. And we actually have a two-year plan that is in the works on how we can recover from the pandemic academically. So I think that would be an interesting conversation around, you know, what does recovery look like, especially since things are still somewhat uncertain about the future. The other part is how are we improving things for kids who have experienced or living in poverty? We have a lot of what they call children in transition who are basically couch surfing or living in temporary accommodations and, you know, what what are we doing for them? Uh, what's the situation been like? Obviously, homelessness in our community is a big issue right now, and people forget that that often involves children. You know, maybe keeping up on the funding thing and seeing how that goes with the legislature once it's over. There's so, there's so, so much. It's such a, a big thing, but I'm always happy to found some ideas around. (laughs) What else? Is there anything else that you want people to know about what's going on in the school district? Anything that you think is important to to bring up while while I got people's attention? Nothing that I think would be important by the time this airs. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're moving. It's so funny. You know, things move slow, but things also move kind of fast. So by the time this airs, some things will already have been done and voted on. But I would just encourage people to pay attention, get involved, let the board know how you're feeling about some of the issues of the day because, you know, a lot of people feel like, oh, I my voice doesn't matter. I'm like, oh, no, it actually does. It has helped me tremendously in some of the decisions that I've had to be a part of. So it, community voice matters and, um, and I'm here to listen. <laughs> awesome. So how can people stay in touch or, or stay in the loop on what's going on? I would say um, you can go to washerschools.net and there is a, a board page that has an email newsletter you can subscribe to. You get an email before every board meeting of what's coming up. 
and you get updates on things that you can take a survey on and give your input on on a really regular basis. We try to engage with the community as much as possible. And on that page as well is how you can reach out to me and you can reach out to whoever your representative is and um, really stay engaged. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and telling me a little bit about what's going on in the world of education here in Reno and your experience as a new member of the Board of Trustees. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you, listeners, for checking out the show this week. And thanks again to our guest, Kurt Thigpen. I appreciate Kurt taking the time to educate me about some of the things going on in our education system here in Washoe County. If you enjoyed the show, please do me a favor, share it on your social media, let people know that it's out there, or leave me a review. If you can find me on Apple Podcasts and give me a five-star review, that will help me show up in searches. It'll help people find the podcast. It'll encourage people who find it to actually listen to it. It makes a huge difference. So any reviews, any shares, subscribe, all that good stuff. I definitely appreciate the support. Thank you so much again for checking out the episode this week. See you next time.